good for you. You can go home and say you've had your calisthenics and you've already been to the gym today. That's the kind of church I want to go to, right? Just feeding off what the pastor said, where you, you get to go to church and you have a good physical workout at the same time. Amen. Uh, it is a joy to be here. Consider it a huge honor to always be among God's people anywhere and to speak to people. And never take that for granted. It's been many, many years now, but it's still an incredible honor. Do not know to this day why the Lord chose me to do that, but I'm pretty sure it was in spite of me, not because of me. And so, as all of us, how many of you would agree that God chose you in spite of you, not because of you? Amen. And so, we are uh, delighted to be here. Always honor my sweet wife, partner, who uh, carries the load of ministry. Uh, we do that together and love to, to be in service with her. We don't always get to do that, but today we get to do that. And it's also a thrill to have our daughter and son-in-law with us in service, Jordan and Scott. And his parents are with us, actually. I want to give them a good hand. Stan and Gwen, thank you for joining us. God bless you. <clears throat> I have something on my heart today, and I'm going to be... So for those of you who got scared to death when pastor said that we don't care if you want to get out at noon, well, I'm, I'm with him partially in that, and so I'm going to do my best to get you out and not take advantage of your time. Open your Bible, if you will, to the book of Philippians, and we'll stand. I know you've been standing a lot of the service today, but I do love to stand when we read God's Word. I think it communicates a message to us and to others that something is really important is about to be said. How many love the Word of the Lord today? Amen. So I'd like to talk, we're, we're kind of continuing with the series the church has been in on marriage and family, and so I'm going to broaden that just a bit today, but I think that uh, prayerfully some of the things that I say will have an application in every area of your life, and certainly uh, not limited to your marriage, but in, in your marriage as well. The book of Philippians chapter number two, uh, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord in one mind. What a powerful verse. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not on his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Verse 5. If you have a highlighter or a pen or take, going to take some notes, you might want. We're going to key and focus on this passage, 5 through 11, today. It's a very special passage inserted by the Apostle Paul into this letter. It's called by ancient scholars the Christ Hymn. The Christ Hymn. It was an ancient song that was sung among the earliest believers. Perhaps the earliest recollection and record of the gospel message is found in this hymn. It was a catechism. It was, in those days, they didn't have the Bible. They had the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. And so the leaders taught the people songs and embedded in the songs theology so they could know what they believed. And this was a song that was sung by the early church. Certainly, perhaps, by the Philippian church. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. So now let's pray together and I'll let you be seated and you can say finally. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit that's in this room. We thank you, Lord, that the Word of God is alive and living. It's sharp. It comforts and cuts. Lord, it brings peace and it challenges us. And Lord, we declare today that our hearts are open. And Lord, every filter is open and we will receive with gladness the teaching of the Word of God. And we pray that it will produce powerful results in our life. 
for the glory of God. In Jesus' great name, amen. High five a couple of people and tell them, get ready for the word of the Lord. This message actually is coming out of a, a series that I'm developing called Foundations. Just core foundational stuff. That's really what the Lord has spoken to me about delivering to the body of Christ today. And you know what, Destiny, it's been a wonderful time lately. We've had, as Pastor mentioned, I had kind of felt like it was time to start slowing down and beginning the process of pulling the reins back a bit. But last year was my busiest year on the road in a decade or maybe two. It's been an amazing year, and we kind of broke out of the gate this year with the same kind of thing. And so, just as a side note, before I get into this passage and we talk about it today, there's a lot of great things happening, some of which I'd love for you to plug into. As a matter of fact, we're going to be going back to Israel in November of 2019. And so we've curated the itinerary, we've handpicked the locations and the style of travel and and all of that. And so if you've never been and always wanted to go to Israel, well, we invite you to come and go with us. We're going to have a wonderful, wonderful time. It's going to be, I believe the dates on that are maybe the uh, the 6th through the 13th. I'm looking for Jeannie back there. So, yeah, 4th through the, uh, the 13th. 6th through the 13th or 6th through whenever we get back. So that'll be all right. You just We won't leave you over there, I promise. So you come and go with us. Also, we're going to be traveling to Washington, D.C. Uh, later this year and touring the Capitol and uh, visiting with some uh, political leaders there, touring the Bible Museum. And so there's going to be a, tri a trip planned for that, I think, in September. And we'd love for you to make that trip. And for the courageous, if you'd like to go to India, we'll be there as well in um, November. So it's going to be a busy fall, and we invite you to, to join in with us. And so... Uh, going to be out tomorrow and the next day shooting video in Houston and uh, be with a, a number of great leaders there at a great church and we're going to be uh, shooting video about some of the transitions Pastor mentioned that's going on with Destiny. I won't take the time to talk about that today, but there's some really great things that are happening. All right, in this series on foundations, I want to, uh, to just kind of talk a little bit out of the book of Philippians. I've been studying Philippians of late. And there's, it's one of uh, Paul's most quoted books. As a matter of fact, when you read the book of Philippians, uh, just beginning to end, it's only four chapters. It'll take you about 20 minutes or so to read the entire book, 25 minutes if you, you know, kind of read it in depth. You'll find some of the most quoted passages of the entire Bible that are embedded in this brief thank you letter that was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison, or we believe he, he wrote this while he was in prison in Rome. The church at Philippi was about 10 years old. It had been established around A.D. 51. We believe that this book is written in and around 61 A.D. while he is in prison there. The Philippian church has been perhaps the closest in relationship to the Apostle Paul, caring for him with great care, uh, helping and supporting him financially and and helping to carry the load of his ministry. And so, as most uh, ministers do when people help them and support their ministry, he's uh, writing a thank you letter. He's writing because Epaphroditus has come from the church there who was part of the work there and, and brought word of divisions and difficulties and problems that have sprung up in the Philippian church. And so, Paul has the, the motivation to write to address some of the divisions in the church, but also to just write a warm thank you letter to those who have been supporting and giving to him. And there's an urgent message that Paul delivers in the book of Philippians. That urgent message is one of unity. Unity. As a matter of fact, if you study the Apostle Paul's writings, you'll find out that he talks a lot about unity. It's as almost as if he thought that the stability of the church that was fledgling and beginning to get going and beginning to grow, that unity was perhaps the most powerful tool that could be used in the church to bring stability in a chaotic world. And I believe with all my heart that that's still true. Can I get an amen today? Amen. We, like the first century church, are living in one of the most chaotic, uh, dramatic times and epics in all of history. All you have to do is turn on the news, and it doesn't matter which channel you watch. You're going to, you know, and even if it's not all true, the fact is most of it, the news is bad. Can I get an amen? So Paul delivers this incredible message about unity. But the interesting thing is, is unity doesn't work without its partner, humility. 
So you can look at your neighbor and say, yes, I have come to the service today and I'm going to hear the preacher talk about humility. Let me say right up front, having a humble heart is the foremost key to building effective relationships at every level. It doesn't matter whether it's your marriage in your home or whether you're on the job and at work or whether you're in your local church or your body of believers that you're attached to. The unity of the, of the of friends and family is the foundational block of everything that is built successfully and the core of unity is humility. Everybody say humility. It's just kind of hard to say, isn't it? It's just not one of those words that just flows off the tongue like beautiful or, or red or violet or blue. No, humility is kind of hard to say. And that's because intrinsically in the heart of man is the core of sin and all sin, which is pride. And this is why I think the Apostle Paul wrote so often and so dramatically about the power of humility. And so I'd like to use as a subtitle today, When Two Humble Hearts Connect. Would you say that with me? When two humble hearts connect. It's very difficult to stay in unity when dealing with rampant pride, arrogance, and self-interest. So let me make a couple of statements right up front in my message. First of all, let me say, having a humble heart is the key to everything. So if you're just taking some notes, you might want to jot that down. Having a humble heart is the key to everything, but this is another statement I want to make. Pride, arrogance, and conceit are devilish attitudes and have a demonic anointing. We all as believers want to walk in the anointing of the Holy Spirit, right? We want to walk empowered by God's grace, and empowered by His Spirit, and anointed to do what God's called us to do. But did you know pride carries a similar anointing as walking in grace and humility? The only thing is the source is not God, it's the devil. Yes, that's right. That means the last time you got mad and gave somebody a piece of your mind because you insisted on being right, you can't say the Lord made you do it. You were actually pretty accurate by saying the devil made me do it. And how many like to be in the room with somebody that's just filled with arrogance and pride and conceit? It's not much fun, isn't it? I, and if that's your lifestyle and that's the style of life that you're walking in, I don't want to blow your theological halos off this morning, but people don't like being around you. And God forbid that you're married to someone who is always right, knows it all. Isn't that a lot of fun? I mean, you want to get the romantic, you know, the romantic flow going, just be real prideful, arrogant, and demonstrate lots of self-interest, and that'll kill that romantic moment. Can I get a powerful amen? Now, Kath and I just Friday night went to the concert, to the James Taylor concert, and it was awesome at the Altel, it wasn't, well, it's not Altel Arena anymore, Verizon Arena, and, you know, she and I and about 5,000 of our closest friends gathered and listened to the music of James Taylor, and there's a, a real romantic bend. But, you know, we could have killed that entire moment if she and I would have argued all the way down there about where we're going to park, when we're going to park, what... Come on, you're right. I need a little better amen than that because that's true. So let me just say right up front, right off the bat, that pride, arrogance, and conceit are devilish attitudes and carry a demonic anointing for destruction. Jesus told us in John's gospel that the enemy comes just for one purpose, right? And that is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And if you think the enemy wants you to have a happy marriage and wants you to live harmoniously, if, the, if you think the enemy wants you to live in great agreement and spiritual fulfillment, I got another word for you. The devil does not want. He wants to kill your love. He wants to destroy your relationship and bring nothing what God brought together for something. And I will go on as I begin my remarks today by saying that we live in an exceedingly arrogant and prideful generation. I'm not, I don't like being known for what I'm against. I like being known for what I'm for. But I do believe there are times in the pulpits of America where we have to stand up and be a voice and say, this is not right. It's only a prideful, self-centered generation that would even contemplate such a thing as killing a child as it's approaching the womb, coming out of the womb of its mother. 
It's only an arrogant generation that would do that. It's only a generation filled with self-interest and pride that would consider such a thing. So we live in postmodern world, and some of you have heard that phrase. You've heard the term postmodern, and those academics in the room might have heard it termed postmodernity. Uh, the world, this postmodern world is a world without absolutes and without certainty. And if you'll allow me just for a second as I lay a couple of moments foundation, let me just talk to you about the current situation of our culture and our world. Social scientists and philosophers divide history into three general eras. The first is the pre-modern era. The second is the modern era. And the third is the postmodern era of which we're a part today. And each one of those eras have what's called an epistemology. That essentially means a search for meaning and a search for significance and truth. Each one of those eras had foundations of truth that they stood upon. In the pre-modern world, the epistemology was God. Long before the Enlightenment, long before the scientific breakthrough of empirical studies, essentially back in the day, that, you know, people blamed everything on God or a God. We didn't understand what created thunder, so it must be God. Uh, we didn't understand how things worked in the, in the world around us, in, in the world of cosmology, in the world. We didn't understand how things worked, so we blamed everything on God. These, this time frame in human history is when the basic writings of Scripture developed. As a matter of fact, the Old and New Testament came along, and then the book of Quran and the various writings that people view as sacred. I don't view any of them as sacred except the, the Word of God. Can I get an amen? But nevertheless, that's when the emergence of literature came that related to God because people blamed everything on God. And then along about the 1400s or so, there was the Enlightenment. And during the Age of Enlightenment, the modern era began to emerge. And now the scientific method was discovered. And now it wasn't God that got blamed for everything, but there was a scientific explanation for everything. And the epistemology or the search for truth and meaning related to science. And if science couldn't explain it, then there was no room for explanation outside of that. Because people had begun to move away from God and now answer life's questions with science. Are y'all in the room? You okay? And then we come to the third era. This era is the postmodern or postmodernity era, and this is the area where there are no absolutes. Absolute truth has been done away with, and now it is the era of personal opinion. I call it the it seems to me generation. Its focus is largely deconstructionism, specifically the deconstruction of authority. You see, in the, in the pre-modern world, we had the authority in the universe, which was God. And how many believe he didn't change with the calendar? But as people moved from that to science, we had the authority of science and the empirical facts. Well, 2 plus 2 equals 4, and if you throw a rock up in the air, it falls back to the ground. The laws of nature and the laws of gravity. And this became the authority structures of civilization. But now we've moved into an era where it doesn't matter what the Bible says. It doesn't matter what science says. It seems to me. Its focus is largely deconstruction, and it's produced the most self-absorbed, offended, thankless generation in history. Without the beholding to a God, without even the beholding to science. The postmodern era is largely the age of me, from our selfie-filled social media accounts to our hypersensitive, constantly offended society that has become the hallmark of our generation. It seems like today everybody's mad about something. Everybody's been victimized. Every, and listen, I'm not disparaging in any way legitimate injustice. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying there is a spirit of the age that has taken over in the world, not just in America, but it's showcased before us that it says it's all about me and what I think, and it doesn't matter what science, it doesn't matter what God says. Today, absolute truth has been dismissed as a religious myth. Truth is now subjective and relative. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone has a truth. Everyone has an agenda and a soapbox. And as a result of technology, the medium to express it to the world. Right. 
Look at your neighbor and say, I'm not getting scared yet. So we've all become authorities, right? I mean, we've all become authorities on everything, whether we know anything about it or not. We've become the, it seems to me, generation where the highest authority in our life is me on any subject. Interview anyone on the streets about truth and they will acknowledge on one hand what the Bible says. Oh, I heard that in Sunday school or I heard a preacher say that once. Or they will even acknowledge well, what science says or what the great scientists of the past said or what the empirical facts suggest. But then they will pivot without the least moment's hesitation and say, but it seems to me. What does the Bible say about life? Well, the Bible talks about the sanctity of human life. Can I get an amen for that? But then we'll pivot instantly and say, it seems to me. The power of their personal opinion has become their truth. And I actually heard, I watched some of the Senate confirmation stuff. And probably you did too. And, and during that all craziness with Kavanaugh and all that, I heard senators saying to, to the lady that had accused him, what is your truth? Tell us, we honor your truth. And I'm not, I'm not saying whether she was telling the truth or not. I don't know. But it was, when, when did truth become my truth? See, I was raised that there is the truth. And, and yes, I mean, there's my version of the truth, and there's your version of the truth, and then there is the truth. And that's how most arguments are handled, right? I mean, there's what you think, what I think, and then there's the way it really is. But we are in a generation today, ladies and gentlemen, that has thrown out the idea of absolute truth, and it's all about what I think is right, that guiding concept that has become my authority sadly the authority of self has become the supreme court of the heart of man and the deconstruction of authority is its ultimate goal and self-exaltation is its result wow some of you are thinking wow brother Brassfield you're a little intense today maybe you should study something besides Philippians I didn't know all that was in Philippians Notice what Paul said about, turn with me to the book first, uh, the first chapter of Romans. A very famous passage today. It's become more famous of late. But if you take away, this is, a, uh, this is a passage that we often refer to based on dealing with homosexual issues and, and uh, lesbian issues. But if you take all that out and just look at the description that the apostle uses of a generation, even in his day, but I would suggest to you has become more acute today. If you look with me at verse number 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge... I've just been talking to you about that, right? We've become too big for God. God is too colloquial. God is too naive. God is too mystical. God is So we don't have room, and we would certainly never acknowledge the authority of Scripture today as the final authority. I'm talking about general population, general culture around us. Does that sound like what Paul is saying? He says they chose not to retain God in their minds or in their knowledge. God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting. Being filled with all... See if this description sounds like the culture around you today. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder. Somebody say murder. Murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God. Did you know around the world today there are more people that are being persecuted today? than there have been in all of history combined. Over the last five to seven years, there have been more martyrs who have given their life for their faith in Jesus Christ over the last five to seven years globally than 2,000 years of church history combined. Backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Some of you are think, thinking, well, that sounds like my first wife or my first husband. Knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only they do the same, but approve of those who practice them. There is a pretty thorough description by the Apostle Paul from 2,000 years in the past 
that pretty much pegs the culture that we're a part of, ladies and gentlemen. I don't want to be negative today, and prayerfully, I'm not going to end with a negative word, but I do want you to understand that we need the church to be the church. We need people who are believers to be believers. We need people whose allegiance is to God first, no matter what the Democrats say, no matter what the Republicans say, no matter what they say in Hollywood, no matter what they say on Wall Street, no matter what they say in New York City, we need believers who'll rise up and say, the Word of God says this, and as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That's what Joshua, don't feel like you're the only generation that's ever had to do that. Joshua did it in his day. All of the apostles did it in their day. I was reading about the apostolic fathers, which were essentially the disciples of the disciples, right? This is that first group, that first bridge group. And after about 250 years or so, uh, Constantine formed a council and invited 1,800 bishops to the room. About 300 were able to make the journey. People say, well, this was the politicized church. No, no, this was the organic church. It hadn't been politically polluted yet. And Eusebius, which was a historian, wrote about it. And he said, Pastor, that the room was filled with people who'd had their hands cut off and their eyes gouged out. I'd love to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that Christianity can be this wonderful little pastel faith where we just like little Bo Peep see sheep floating from, you know, pastel shades of sheep floating from hill to hill. But I'm concerned that our Christianity is moving headlong toward a place that it may not look like that. As a matter of fact, we may have to also be brought before a tribunal and then ask the question, do you believe God and His Word or are you prepared to die? So I have to tell you, as a man who speaks to the body of Christ at large, I feel the stirring in my spirit to begin to prepare leaders and to begin to prepare the body of Christ and say, listen, we're going to have to be ready to pay the ultimate sacrifice if necessary because we cannot accept a polluted version. An apostate church will never change the world. Okay, wow. You know, so I'm not mad at anybody. Except the devil. And it's okay for me to hate him. I hate the devil. For 35 years I've been on the front lines of seeing lives and hearts that he has destroyed. And people who live so far below their potential and their, their true possibility in their life. Because they believe the lie. Amen. So you say, so what, what is the antidote for that, Brother Brass? What, what is the antidote for a, a, a culture that is sick with the disease of self. What's the antidote? Well, it's very similar to what the Greco-Roman culture was a part of which Paul wrote to. That's why in all of his epistles, he again and again and again focused on unity and humility. Unity and humility because he understood there's a power that comes from a humble heart. I'm reminded in how, how God spoke to, to Solomon in the middle of the night after Solomon was preparing to dedicate the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, when he says, If my people who are called by my name, those who are called, those who appreciate the, 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 the breakthroughs of science and those who appreciate all the wonderful things that we enjoy that's come as a real, but those who are still saying, My allegiance is with the creator of the universe, or my allegiance is with God. He said, If my people who are called by my my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. No, I'm describing the culture of today, but the fact of the matter is it's not that different from humanism, which has been around since Adam and Eve's first fall. It's the same old lie. It's the same old war. It's the same old battle, and it rages yet today. And for a couple of hundred years, we've had this beautiful enclave in all of its imperfections, in all of its shortcomings, in all of its deficiencies. I'm not defending that in America, but it has been the greatest nation that's ever been, on the, in my opinion, on the planet. It's provided freedom for people, and the gospel has flourished. But in the middle of this environment, if we're not careful, we'll allow our pride and arrogance to divorce us from the power of God that changes the life. We have to. He always has said and will always say, if you come after me, let you pick up your cross and follow me. 
Amen, Brother Brassfield. That's an that's a amen word right there. Sometimes you got to encourage your own self in the Lord. You know what I'm saying? But apart from a lot of the politicians around, I'm not running for anything. So how did Paul give us the antidote? Well, let's look at it. He says to the Philippian church, he says, I mean, he, he opens, first of all. Now, I have to tell you, I'm amazed at Paul's memory. Because Paul opens the book by saying, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And I'm thinking when I'm reading that, okay, Paul, didn't they, like, didn't you get the beating of your life in Philippi? It wasn't it in Philippi that you spent the night in jail with Silas and were praising at the midnight hour after you got thrashed within the inch of your life? But yet, when he looks back 10 years later, he says to the church, when I think about you, it's fond thoughts that I think about. Because he focused on what God did, not what he endured. His focus was not on himself. It was on the purpose of God lived through him. He would later say, you see, for me to live is Christ. To live. My, my added, to live. He says, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Paul was so synergized with the purpose of God and so surrendered to the purpose of God that he literally imagined that if he was alive in any situation, Jesus was in that situation through him. That's what he means. For me to live is Christ. He goes on to say, and this is why I can interpret it that way, because he goes on to say, I, I'm really caught between two things. I, I'm caught between a desire to go and be with him. And he says, I know that there'll be a day that I'll go to be with him, but as long as I'm alive, I'm him here with you. How, 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 would it, how would revival erupt in the church in America across all denominational lines and among all believers if the body of Christ began to rise up and say the only thing that matters, Lord, is for us to be you in every situation? How would it change your marriage if in any moment of conflict, conflict instead of you know just kind of going off the handle and allowing yourself the latitude to tell somebody, a lot of us have given so much of our, I'm going to give her a piece of my mind. You've done it so much there's nothing left to think with. So what, what, how would it change us if instead of going to that point, instead we just thought the old you know, wristbands we used to wear, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? I always tell, when doing couple retreats and those things over the years, I always told people, look, whatever you can do to your husband or wife in faith, do it. If you can cuss them out in faith, do it. Knock yourself out. But you got to be able to do it legitimately in faith. If you go out and have an affair in faith, do it. Wouldn't it be amazing if we allowed faith to be our guides? How would it change? You can't do that with an arrogant position to defend. You can only do that when you have considered yourself dead and that your role in that moment is simply to be Jesus in that situation. Because Jesus is going to bring peace and wholeness. So I'm amazed, like, okay, Paul, you forget what they did to you? They said, no, but when I think about you, I, I, I rejoice. And there's so many powerful things. But notice in verse two, chapter 2, because that's where we're at. Look at, the, look at the relational conversation, the language that Paul uses in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If there's any consolation, that is a, that is a relational term. It's actually, uh, it's kind of the root word that we see later or earlier used of the Holy Spirit, parakletos. In the Greek. Parakletos. If there's any parakletos, if there's any consolation, it's a relational term. It's hard to have that by yourself. Because to be comforted, you're being comforted in relationship. If there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, or any affection and mercy, he said, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord with one. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each one esteem others better than themselves. What is the antidote for a pride-driven culture and a pride-driven life? It's a humble heart. 
And I guess we resist it because we're afraid in some ways that there will be less of us or that we will lose something of ourselves in the moment of surrender. But I'm here to tell you that if you will find a low place in your life, God will lift you up. Come on, somebody with me. God will lift you up. This hymn was sung. And isn't it interesting that the earliest record of the gospel includes such terms of relationship and humility. Notice what he says. Let this mind, chapter, verse 5 now, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. The code for that today would be do what Jesus does. WWJD. He said, if you're going to know unity, you're going to be able to withstand the wars around you, Philippians, in the Greco-Roman world and the persecution that's coming. You're going to have to take on the mind of Christ. You're going to have to be less self-focused and more God-aware. You're going to have to be less self-conscious. I've said that. How many have ever said that? Well, I just feel really self-conscious. Well, the truth is, if you're going to have powerful relationships, you've got to become less self-conscious and more God-aware. Everybody say that with me. Less self-conscious, more God-aware. Because, you see, I found that self takes up so much space, there's no God room left. There's no God room. If you're so focused, well, do I look all right? Am I okay? And, it's just like, you know, and we all do that. How many, I mean, honestly, I'm not going to ask you to say how many of you spent at least 30 minutes in front of the mirror before you got to church this morning, but I would bet that that would be a lot of the crowd, myself included. It's just human nature. It's just human nature, but I'm saying if we give into it and we surrender, it can become a preoccupation that drives your life and governs everything to where you can't even have a conversation with your spouse without everything reflected, you, you the way you feel, the way you think, the way you want it. Oh, I need a better amen because as pastor said sometimes, I think I'm preaching better than y'all are saying that shouting amen. But it's true, and I'm going to give you the antidote because you don't have to have a degree in relationships. You don't have to have a degree in communications. You have more degrees than the thermometer, and it's not. No, listen, I'm going to tell you right now how you do it. You humble your heart. You humble yourself before God. You humble yourself before your spouse, and you become expendable. Humility is the language of love. Thank you, brother. Amen. Humility is the language of love. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, so there was no identity. In, I'm not talking about self-degradation here. I'm not talking about, no, no, you becoming a floor mat. Jesus knew exactly who he was. There was no identity crisis. Jesus wasn't trying to figure himself out, and he's not trying to figure you out. He's got you all figured out, and if you just listen to him, he'd help you figure you out. There was no identity crisis in Jesus. He wasn't wondering, well, am I the son of God or not? No, no, the enemy tried to sow those ideas, and he always responded with the word of God. How did Jesus overcome the flesh? With the word of God. How did Jesus overcome temptation? With the word of God. It's the antidote. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. I think if, G if anybody could make themselves a reputation to be all you know, kind of bad, it'd be Jesus. I mean, honestly, if you can walk on water and cast out a thousand devils at a time, it's like, oh yeah, who's your daddy now? Right? I mean, if anybody had the right to walk in arrogance and pride, and it'd be Jesus. I mean, in any of those conversations with the Pharisees that were always against him, he could have just paused and said, uh, pardon me, did I mention that I created the entire universe? <laughs> this is what this passage means, that being in the form of God, yet he did not consider it to be equal. The language really in the New King James is a little, is a little cumbersome. The idea is that he did not try to hold on too tightly to his divine privileges. And there were moments he could have been tempted to do it. Honestly, if they had drugged me through the streets, pulled my beard out, spit in my face, whipped me with a cat of nine tails, or not, cat, whatever, you know, you, that whip thing they use, you know what I'm saying? If they had done that to me and drugged me through the streets naked, when I came out of the grave, I would have visited some folks that had a celestial visit coming, you know what I'm saying? 
It's like, now which one of y'all was on the other end of that whip? I'm resurrected now. Mm-hmm. But instead, Jesus makes his first appearance after the resurrection. This is the style. Let this mind be in you that was also in Jesus. He makes his first appearance of the resurrection. Not in the, the high halls of government or in the Sanhedrin where they convicted him unjustly. He makes his first appearance to an ex-hooker in an obscure garden and makes her the first evangelist of the new covenant. That's my Jesus. That's the power of a humble heart. Nothing to prove. Nobody to get back at. Even though he'd been wronged. Instead of feeling the need to set it right. He realized that that was not his mission. And the church sung about it. Who being in the form of God did not consider it to be robbery to be equal with God. Yet made himself of no reputation taking on the form of a bondservant, a slave. And coming in the likeness of men and being found as a man. He humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death. Even the death of the cross. No, friends, we don't want to be self-exalted. We want to humble ourselves. If we exalt ourselves, the Lord will help you with humility. If you humble yourself, He will help you with being exalted. The language of love is humility. Not negotiating, not making deals that protect your self-interest. I tell you today, if you want a beautiful marriage... Learn to humble yourself before one another. The perfect picture of our posture is found in the story of the prodigal son. We've all read that story, haven't we, many times. And if anybody could have been arrogant a little bit, it would have been the father. You know, the kid insulted him by coming and asking for his inheritance early. The father gave it to him, and then the kid summarily went out. And spent it in riotous living. Now, I'm not exactly sure riotous living, what it is, but we can kind of figure it out. Wine, women, song, men, whatever, I don't know. The scripture indicates that he squandered all that his father had given him, that he'd earned through hard work and diligence. And the boy squandered it. When the boy finally winds up in need and has nothing left, and is destitute, he joins himself. You know the story. And then there came a moment where he said, wait a minute, what am I thinking? Even the, even the servants in my father's house do better than this. So he says, and he rehearses, so this is what I will do. I will go home to my dad. And I'll say, dad, I really blew it. If he had walked up and strutted to his father, I'm pretty sure the entire response would have been different. His father was watching for him. And he was just waiting for that humble heart to come on the property. And he saw him from a long way off. And it didn't matter how many people he'd been with. It didn't matter how much he gambled. What, at that moment, that father wasn't the least bit concerned with the good stewardship or in this case, the bad stewardship exhibited by the son. All he thought is my son who was dead in himself. My son who was dead with pride. Pride had killed him. My son who had no hope because he was relying on his self, him, and all only what he could provide. My son has awakened and has returned home. And before he can even get the words out, he says, I will say, Dad, I've sinned against you and against heaven. What I've done is not just wrong with you. I, I betrayed God's trust. And I'm not worthy to be called your son. But before he could get his little rehearsed message out, the, the father fell on his neck, the Bible says. <laughs> kissed him. He kissed him so much he didn't have a chance to deliver his speech. That's what humility will do for you. That's the power of a humble heart. Is God won't even give you a chance to explain. He won't even give you a chance to recite all the stuff you messed up and done wrong. He's so busy loving you. The 
because the scripture says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Much of our culture today, ladies and gentlemen, is in a posture where God has begun the resistance. You know what it means to be resisted by God? The prospects of your future is not terribly exciting. You know what I'm saying? When God, listen, I might resist you, you'll get over it. But when God resists you, you can't escape it. It's like everywhere you go, there is a pressure of resistance. Anybody in this room ever been in a place where it's like everything that you touch and all that you do seems like it goes? Murphy's Law becomes the order of your life. Whatever can go wrong will at the worst possible moment. Anybody ever lived in that? That's not the life God wants you to live. But if you go to God in arrogance, if you essentially say, God, I'm going to live my life my way, no matter what you say, no matter what you do, I don't care, I'm going to do it my way, then God assumes a resistant posture to you until you come to your senses, until you begin to repent and you develop a humble heart. Can I get a good amen today? Okay, so let me wrap up today by essentially pulling out for you four things that Jesus did. Because remember, this is Jesus showing us the way, okay? So that's my message. You've heard it today. Some of you have probably been inspired by it. Some probably ticked. And maybe the Word has done its job. Number one, what do we see that Jesus did? Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Okay, so what did that look like? Here's what Jesus did. Number one, he made of himself no reputation. He emptied himself of his privileges. He did not defend his identity, his honor, or his majesty. In other words, he did not demand his rights. He chose rather to humble himself. He made of himself no reputation. The second thing that I see that he did in this passage is he took on the form of a bondservant. His goal was not to realize his personal potential, but to accomplish God's purpose in his life. His goal was not to realize his personal potential. I would suggest that if you choose God's will for your life, you will do both. That your maximum potential will only be realized when you have said like Jesus did in the garden, not my will, but thine be done. It is the greatest, most noble prayer that any person can ever pray. Lord, I surrender my will. Show me your will, and I will do it. Taking on the form of a bondservant. Imagine, the creator of the universe. The creator of all that is. The God of heaven and earth. The Holy Son, the only begotten of the Father, took the form of a bondservant, made himself a slave. Jesus had divine potential in every situation, but he, he chose to live as a human. Never chose, he chose to never let his divinity get in the way. Listen, he chose to never let his divinity get in the way of God's ordained purpose for his humanity. God said, My mission here is to be human. My mission here is not to draw on my divinity for my personal gain or my personal reputation. My mission in this situation is to be you. So that when I die, I can not just die for you. I can die as you. I said his mission wasn't just to die for you. His mission was to die as you. And thereby secure our salvation. Number three, he humbled himself. Did you know the word humility simply made himself low? That's what the word means. It made himself low. When Peter writes about it, stand with me, would you? I'm finishing up. When Peter writes about it in 1 Peter chapter 5, he's at the end of his life. He's toward the end of his life. Peter is, and he's right. Now, you remember Peter. Peter was the guy that, right, was like pretty bad. You know, it's like if you mess with him, he'd cut you. Right? I mean, he'd pull a knife and get, get down to business, you know. We have a biblical record of that. He's the one that was always 
getting his foot in his mouth, you know, and bragging all the, I'm, I'm going to do this, and I'm gonna, Jesus said, I'm going to die. No, you're not going to die. You know, Peter's that guy. Toward the end of his life, he writes, and if you read his letters, you'll find out that the core message of his letters was humility as well and submission. In chapter 5 of 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, I'm sorry, in that chapter he says, to you elders, I who am a fellow elder, write to you. He could have said, uh, I'm one of the rocks. I was there, you know. In other words, he could have laid claim to all kinds of pomp and circumstance and position. But instead he says, I'm just one of you. I'm one of the guys. And then he goes on to say later, he says, submit yourselves one to another. Submit yourselves one to another. And be clothed with humility. I think he used that phrase in the Greek because he'd seen that before. He knew what being clothed with humility looked like. Because he was indeed there the night that Jesus pulled his robes off. The night he was betrayed. And the Bible says he wrapped himself in a towel. Joe, he knew what that looked like. He said, be clothed with humility. Wear the garment of a slave. That's what Jesus did that night. He did what only a slave would do in the first generation, the first culture. First century, I should say. He did what only a slave would do. He took off his robes, wrapped himself in a linen apron, which is how slaves attended the table and attended a party in those days. And he began to wash the disciples' feet. And when he got to Peter, Peter said, you're not going to do that to me. Uh Uh-uh. And at the end of his life, he writes back to the elders and he said, wear humility like a robe. Make yourself low. He says, because God resists the proud. He's speaking from experience. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due season. Casting all your care on him for he. We want to read that part. I'm casting all my cares on the Lord. We just don't like to read the being clothed with humility part. But ladies and gentlemen, it is the antidote. The antidote for the church in the world today is not to become combative, not to be out. I don't mean it's fine. You want to protest, protest, whatever. But it's not. That's not the answer. The answer is a humble posture of submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ that will literally so transcend our lives that it affects everything we do, from our marriages to our businesses to our life, so that it begins to portray the gospel message to a lost and dying world, so that the gospel becomes irresistible. I've kept you too long. Bow bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're here today and you say, Brother Brasfield, honestly.